our glorious God in whom we trust, in whom is our salvation. We cry out to You with praise and thanksgiving. We rejoice in You and shout Your greatness to the heavens. You are the only true God, the only wise Creator, the omnipotent Ruler, the gracious Savior. Father in heaven, You have ordained all that comes to pass, working all things together according to Your counsel. And Your eternal purpose is to sum up everything in Christ Jesus, Your eternal Son and our elder brother, the firstborn from the dead, who was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. In Him all things hold together, for He is the incarnation of Your wisdom, holiness, and love. And through Your Holy Spirit poured out upon us, we come to know You in Your Son. For Your Spirit inspired the Scriptures, the perfect and full revelation of who You are and of Your purposes. The Spirit is poured out on us in baptism to unite us to Your Son. And the Spirit makes the bread and wine we eat and drink, spiritual food and drink for us at Your table, giving us all Your gifts, empowering us and equipping us for royal service. And so today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do Your work. Give us Your gifts. Make all things new. Shower us with repentance. Fill us with Your grace, love, and truth. Renew Your everlasting covenant with us. You are the one true God. And You have made us Your people, the sheep of Your pasture. Glorify us that we might give You glory. Give to us that we might give to You, O holy and merciful God. This is our prayer. Amen. The Old Testament lesson is our sermon text. I will read the first five verses of 1 Chronicles 19 to remind you of the story. Now it came about after this that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, died, and his son became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the sons of Ammon to Hanan to console him. But the princes of the sons of Ammon said to Hanan, Do you think that David is honoring your father, and that he sent comforters to you? Have not his servants come to you to search out and to overthrow and to spy out the land? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the middle as far as the hips and sent them away. Then certain persons went and told David about the men. And he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He is revealed in every page of the Scriptures. We pray that You would enable us by Your Spirit to see Jesus in this story, and seeing Jesus to imitate and follow Him by Your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Our sermon text this morning is taken from a section of Chronicles that records the battles of David. Unlike Samuel, which tells the story of David's battles and wars over a stretch of many, many different, many different uh, chapters, the chronicler has taken all the stories of David's battles and wars and put them into just three chapters, chapters 18 through 20. This section begins and ends with wars with the Philistines. It begins with a description of a war against the Philistines and ends with a description 
of the mighty men of David, <clears throat> excuse me, the mighty men of David fighting one-on-one against various giants. The chronicler doesn't tell the story of David and Goliath. The chronicler instead tells the story of David's men and their battles with giants. It's consistent with the chronicler's aims that he tells stories of David's men as well as of David. David is never a solo king in the book of Chronicles. The chronicler is writing after the exile. He's writing to an Israel that does not have a king at all. And so he's encouraging them to be like the mighty men of David's time, even without a David. But in David's time, we see that David the giant killer inspires his mighty men also to be giant killers. You don't have the story of David and Goliath, but you have the less well-known story of Elhanan and Goliath's brother, which sounds kind of like a joke. You know, I don't know David and Goliath, but I do know Elhanan and uh, Goliath's brother. Then you have a short account in chapter 18 of the story of the Ammonites and the Arameans. That's going to be the focus of our study today. And then at the middle of this section, you have the end of chapter 18, which is a description of David's reign in Israel. He reigns with righteousness and justice. Everything else is telling about wars and battles, about David's conquest of different lands, but at the center of it, the chronicler is concerned with the establishment of righteousness and justice within Israel. David doesn't war just to get, a, get more territory, to conquer more territory, because he's greedy and ambitious for land. He carries on wars in order to establish a safe place in Israel where he can rule with justice and righteousness. All of his wars have this aim. They're all centered on this one, uh, this one, uh, this one aim, this one purpose to establish a just society in Israel. The chronicler tells us that David's wars are also just. That is to say, David follows the Lord's commandments for war when he goes out to war. He captures chariot horses, but he doesn't keep them because he knows the kings aren't supposed to multiply horses and chariots. Deuteronomy 17 tells him that. And so he hamstrings the horses and and keeps only a few. David fights wars, but he doesn't take the plunder for himself. He knows that these are the Lord's wars, and so he devotes the plunder that he receives to the temple that's going to be built by his son Solomon. He's not an Achan. Achan was a member of the same tribe, the tribe of Judah, who laid hands on the treasure of Jericho and brought a curse on all of Israel because of his greed and his sacrilege. David doesn't do that. All of this plunder is devoted to the Lord and the Lord's house. Some of the plunder, in fact, comes voluntarily. One of the kings, two, king of Hamath, sends plunder and sends treasure to David as tribute. David fights against one of two's enemies and therefore delivers two from a threat. David's fighting for other purposes, but he benefits a Gentile nation, and so the Gentile nation sends tribute to David. Some of the plunder comes voluntarily from not from conquered enemies, but from those who are helped by David's just wars. But he fights all these just wars for the purposes of establishing justice in society, justice in Israel. He established and administers justice and righteousness for all his people. And then we're told about all the the members of the cabinet in David's kingdom, the members of the court, who's in charge of the army and who's who's the chief priest, and who's in charge of the bodyguard, and who's in charge 
of the king's lands. The book of Chronicles is a vindication of bureaucracy. If you're a bureaucrat, you should spend some time in Chronicles. Because it tells us the importance of organization and administration and having the right people in the right jobs. And that's part of establishing and, and advancing justice in society. If you have bad administration and people who take bribes in high places, then you're not going to have a just society. If you have an administration or bureaucracy that blocks people from getting things done, you're not going to have a just society. David establishes a just society by establishing the right people in these places. But the passage we want to look at is the story of the Ammonite War, which is told in chapters 19 and 20. This is the war that was going on in the uh, account in First, Second uh, Samuel. This is the war that was going on when David stayed back in Jerusalem, seized Bathsheba, arranged for Uriah's death, and was cursed by God or judged by God. He was repented when Nathan confronted him. Confronted him. None of that is told. Instead, we're told only the story of the surrounding war. We're told about the origin of the war, the conduct of the war, and the result of the war. The war originates in an act of kindness by David. David has had some kind of relationship with the previous king of the Ammonites, Nahash. Nahash has shown chesed to David. You may know that Hebrew word, chesed. It's the word that's translated as loving kindness all through the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament. It's a word that means loyalty and faithfulness, love, but not in a, not in simply an emotional sense, but love in the sense of commitment. Nahash, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, has shown chesed to David. And so when Nahash dies, David wants to show chesed back. And so he sends a delegation to Nahash's son, Hanan. The war begins with an act of faithfulness, loyalty, kindness, and love on David's part. An act of loyalty and love that is completely misconstrued and misinterpreted by the new king of the Ammonites. Hanan sees this delegation coming from Israel, and he's told by his nobles, his advisors, this can't be right. It can't be a king just sending a delegation to console you after your father's death. That's not how kings behave. Kings don't show that kind of love and loyalty and kindness to other kings. He's got something else in mind. He must be sending a delegation in order to test me. After all, I'm a young king. I just took the throne. My father's dead. Things are somewhat in disarray. I haven't established my power yet. David's coming to check me out to see whether I'm a threat to see where the vulnerable places are in Ammon so he can attack. He's coming to spy out the land. He's not here for sincere reasons, because of sincere love for my father. He is here to test me, to see if I can stand up to him. None of this is true, of course. This is Hanan's interpretation of an act of kindness on David's part, but Hanan expects David to be acting just like he does just like he would. He wouldn't send a delegation to express condolence to an opposing king or another king unless he had some other ulterior motive that would advance his own purposes. Hanan and his advisors assume that David is up to something else when he's really not. And Hanan wants to respond. He thinks that David is checking him out, testing him. 
seeing if he's man enough to be king, seeing if his kingdom is vulnerable. And he has to prove his manhood, and he does it the old-fashioned way, which is by humiliating other men. That's how heroes establish their heroic glory, by defeating and humiliating other men. Hanan wants to send a message back to David. I'm a strong man. You better not mess with me. And I'm going to show you just how strong I am by abusing your delegation. Of course, in the ancient world, in the medieval world, wherever there are kings and delegations from kings, the delegations carry the same authority as the king himself. If you mess with the king's delegation or the king's messenger, you're messing with the king. Just read a few of Shakespeare's history plays and you'll see what I mean. Messengers who are abused, that's abuse of the person who sent the messenger. Hanan wants to send a message to David, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not vulnerable. I'm just as strong as my father, even stronger. He made a mistake showing kindness to you. I'm going to show that I'm stronger than my father is. And so he takes the men in David's delegation and he shaves them and he cuts their robes. According to 2 Samuel, he shaves half the beard. We go home with only one half of the beard left. Here it says he simply shaves them. It doesn't tell us how much he shaved, and the impression is more that he shaved them from head to toe. Hair is glory in the Bible. Old people have white hair because they wear crowns all the time because they have been elevated to a place of rule and a place of glory. Jesus has white hair in the book of Revelation. The Ancient of Days has white hair. Hair is a crown. A beard is a masculine, is masculine glory. It's a sign of the glory of a man. And when Hanan shaves the beards of these men, or perhaps shaves them entirely, he's stripping off their glory, and he's feminizing them. He's turning them into hairless women, beardless women, and then sending them back to David. He also attacks their robes. We know something about the importance of royal robes and the robes of a royal delegation from the stories of Samuel. Remember the story of Samuel sneaking into the cave and cutting off just a corner of Saul's robe. And he became stricken in conscience because he, has, he, he saw that cutting off a corner of Saul's robe was in fact an assault on the king. And he asked Saul's forgiveness for this symbolic assault on the king. Hanan doesn't have any scruples like that. He cuts the robes to the hips, or in Dave's, uh, Dave's translation, the buttocks, into the middle of the buttocks. Again, a humiliation. Again, uh, a removal of glory. Robes like hair are a kind of glory. Again, a feminization of David's men who have come in this delegation. Hanan thinks David is up to something. He can't concede that David would be sincere in showing kindness to his father. And so he reacts like any ancient heroic king would act by, dis act by displaying his manhood by humiliating David's men. And he sends them back to Israel. And David does nothing. David does Nothing. He sends the men off, to, men off to Jericho. They can wait until their hair grows back. They won't have to appear in public with their hair, with their beards half shaved or all their hair cut off. They're given new robes, presumably. Don't have to wear those minis anymore. 
But he does nothing. There's no war preparations. There's no retaliation. The only reason a war follows is because Hanan assumes that David is going to retaliate. David's non-response is the most surprising thing about the whole story. So surprising that we can miss it. We miss the fact that the war is initiated not by David in reaction to and retribution for this humiliation, but by Hanan who thinks that David is going to react and take, take vengeance for this humiliation. Hanan starts the war. And he starts the war by attacking the city of Medaba, which is a city in the tribal area of Reuben. It's a city that belongs to David. And then David has to act, and he goes to war. It's a defensive war. David says to start the war, he goes to defend part of his territory against Hanan and the Ammonites. The Ammonites hire Arameans to come and help them. He sends a thousand talents of silver in order to hire mercenary Arameans who have chariots. They have 32,000 chariots. Chariots are the are the tanks, the heavy artillery of the ancient world, of ancient warfare. 32,000 tanks. 32,000 chariots is a huge army that Am- the Ammonites have hired in order to fight against David to take Medaba to respond to, da- to David's non-response, to retaliate for David's non-retaliation. David sends Joab out and Abishai, his brother, and they take care of the Ammonites and the Arameans. This is by the uh, the way that the Chronicler tells the story. It is a, a war of cosmic consequence, and that's particularly evident in the names of the opposing kings. Nahash, in Hebrew, Nahash, means serpent. David had some kind of alliance with a king who was called Serpent. Hanan is the seed of the serpent's and David ends up crushing his head. One of the Aramean kings is Hadadezer, Hadad, Etzer. Hadad helps. Hadad is the personal name of Baal, Baal. Baal is a title that means master or lord, but Baal Hadad is his actual name, as uh, Master Yahweh would be the title and the name of the God of Israel. Hadad helps is the name of the one of the kings that goes out to fight against Israel, against Joab, and then against David. But of course, Hadad doesn't help. And the Ammonites and the Arameans, in spite of all of their artillery, in spite of their 32,000 chariots and all of their mercenaries, can't beat Joab and David. Joab wins the first battle. The Arameans come back with even more people. David goes out and fights against them. He beats them. And then they decide, we're not going to do this anymore. We don't want to be friends with the Ammonites anymore. It's dangerous to be friends with the Ammonites. So they switch sides. So they switch sides and they become allies of David. And then the, the end, which we can miss by the chapter break. The end is actually the beginning of chapter 20 when Joab goes out and fights against the city of Rabbah. Rabbah is the capital city of the Ammonites. This is the conclusion of the whole war, excuse me, the whole war that David has been fighting with the Ammonites. And Joab goes out and besieges the city of Rabbah, takes the city, and then David comes and takes the crown of the king of Rabbah. Well, whose crown is that? That's Hanan's crown. That's the crown of Hanan, the son of Nahash, who insulted David's men, who started the war, 
so that he could protect his crown. The reason he's been doing that is to retain his kingdom. And it ends up that David shows kindness to his father. David does nothing when Hanan insults him. He reacts only when he has to go into a defensive war. And David ends up with the crown. Everything that Hanan was doing was intended to prevent this outcome. And exactly what he wanted to prevent is exactly what happens. David ends up with an Ammonite crown to add to some of his other crowns that he's won by his wars in neighboring countries. David ascends the kingship in Ammon, not because he's defending his own honor, not because he's retaliating to insult. He comes to inherit this crown by kindness, by restraint, by showing chesed to somebody who had shown chesed to him, by fighting when he needs to in the defensive war, David inherits the crown not because he's defending his honor, but because he is entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Somebody is defending David's honor, but it's not David. Somebody is going to repay that insult to David, but it's not David. Somebody is going to secure that crown for David, but it's not because David seizes the crown. This has been David's life. David knows how to do this. This is how he got the crown of Israel, you'll remember. He had plenty of opportunities to retaliate retaliate against Saul, who was doing more than insulting him. Saul was trying to kill him. Saul spent the latter part of his reign forgetting about fighting Philistines and mainly chasing David all around the country, trying to kill David to protect his crown. David fled and David escaped and David always, always returned good for Saul's evil. And David gets the crown. David's path to exaltation is through humiliation, restraint, suffering, kindness, faithfulness, not returning insult for insult, not retaliating when he's abused, waiting for the Lord to grant him the crown. When I describe David's actions in his career that way, you can hear the echoes, and I hope you hear the echoes, of a greater David. Because David, like everybody else in the Old Testament, is a type of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Jesus' exaltation and his securing of his crown is through the same pathway that David used. We sometimes think that David is this great warrior king. Jesus is something quite different. There's a lot more continuity than we sometimes realize. David gains his crown in Israel. He gains the crown of a Gentile kingdom among the people of Ammon. By following the way of Jesus, by humiliation, by bearing insult, by bearing mockery, and by not returning insult for insult, but by but by returning good for the evil that's done for him, done to him. And through that path, David, like Jesus, crushes the serpent's head. This is a good reminder for us during this Lenten season, as Pastor Lust said at the beginning of the service. The Lenten season is primarily about meditation on the sufferings of Jesus. And it's about meditation on our sufferings insofar as we are following Jesus on the way of the cross, like Simon of Cyrene in the Gospel reading, taking up our cross and following him. This path of suffering and the cross is not, as we might think, a way of defeat. 
It's the way of victory. It was the way of victory for David. It's the way of victory for Jesus. Jesus, too, entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. And that Father who judges justly vindicates him. And this is an astonishing truth. This is an astonishing astonishing good news that we have to preach. That this is the way the world is turned around and the world is put back together. Not by some strong man taking control of things and forcing things back together, but by a king who humbles himself and follows a path of the cross, a path of suffering, a path of restraint and kindness and love to his exaltation. But this is the way of Jesus, and it's the gospel we preach because it's God's way. It's an astonishing thing to say that Jesus follows the way of the cross to exaltation, and that's the way the world is redeemed. It's even more astonishing to realize that in doing that, He is manifesting the glory of God and the way of His Father. Jesus does nothing but what He sees the Father doing. He does nothing but what the Father has been doing from the very beginning. You want to see a God who's capable of taking insult and mockery and abuse and rejection and still continuing on His way of redemption, just read the Old Testament. The story begins with rebellion. The story begins with insult. God has given Adam everything. One restriction. One thing He can't do in all the world. And that's the thing He does. It's an insult to His Heavenly Father. And God, of course, God were one of us. We were God. That would be the end of the human race. A very short story. A very short Bible. And shortly after Genesis 3.8, when God wipes out everything and starts over. This God can't be put off His game, though. He's going to do good to His people. He's going to do good to His creation. He's going to fulfill His purposes. Insult or no insult. Rejection or no rejection. Israel is an Adamic people. They do exactly the same thing. God gives them everything they could possibly want or need. He gives them an abundant, fruitful land. He's present with them. He gives them His law so they know how to behave before Him. And they can't worship Him. They can't walk in His ways. And then God comes to them in the flesh. And they do more than reject Him. They do more than insult Him and break His commandments. They kill Him. And He can't be put off His game. This is not a God who's going to recoil from our insults. This is not a God who's going to return evil for evil. This is a God whose good overcomes all human evil and all human sin. He's going to achieve what He set out to achieve despite our sins, despite our rejection. This is the way of Jesus and the way of David because it's the way of God. And in this Lenten season, we should recommit ourselves to making it our way as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He showed patience, kindness, faithfulness to You above all. And that by His faithfulness to Your way and to Your Word, He has been exalted to the heavenlies and He is putting this world back together. We pray that by Your Spirit You would conform us to Jesus, that we would walk 
faithfully in his ways, that we would be his people, we would walk in your ways, the way of humiliation and patience that leads to a crown. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.